Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. He was born in San Francisco, California in October of 1953. Hard to believe this guy's almost 70 years young. I've known him over 30 years. He grew up in Northern California in a baseball family. His father and brother both played minor league baseball. He was a star athlete, like they all are, right, in high school. But sat out, we'll ask him about this in a second, sat out, I read, his senior year in baseball after a dispute with his head coach. He enrolled, played one year at the College of San Mateo, before being drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals. Now listen to this, folks, because it doesn't exist anymore. Guy was drafted in the 42nd round, the 783rd player chosen. That's a 1971 Major League draft. By 74, he's in the big leagues. In 1978, he won his first gold glove with the Cardinals. In 79, he won the National League batting title, hit 344, led the league in runs scored in doubles, He was co-MVP of the National League with Willie Stargell that year. And from that day, really, a star was born. In 82, he led the Cardinals to a World Series title. In a seven-game series win over Milwaukee, he knocked in eight runs in the series. But in June of 83, after a fallout with manager Whitey Herzog, Hernandez was traded to the New York Mets. And at the time, the New York Mets was basically the equivalent of purgatory. But that would not last long. Two years later, Hernandez, yet a young, very uber-talented Mets team to its first winning season in nearly a decade. He wound up runner-up to the National League MVP that year to Ryan Sandberg. And then in 86, you know the deal there. The Mets won it all, an unforgettable World Series against the Boston Red Sox. But Hernandez, right after, named the first captain in New York Mets franchise history by manager Davey Johnson. He finished his career as a five-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, a record 11 gold gloves as a first baseman. He's a member of both the Cardinals and Mets Hall of Fame. We talked about earlier. He's also been an actor, Seinfeld, Law and Order, among others. He's an author who currently has a New York Times best-selling book out right now. I'm Keith Hernandez. He's also a broadcaster for the Mets since 1998 and kind enough to join us where the Mets are down in Houston, Texas right now. One of the all-time greats. I told you, Keith, and, and I, I mean, I've told you before. Good morning. How are you? How's everything in Houston? Uh, everything's great in Houston. It's very hot, as it usually is here in June. It's great to see you, Tom. Great to see you, Keith. I, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. I always like to ask, Keith, uh, people who come on the show. I mentioned your father, your brother, 
What what was what was family life like for the Hernandez growing up in Northern California? Uh, revolved around all three sports. It was football, then uh, football bled into basketball, then basketball bled into baseball. So uh, everything revolved around um, sports. Back then, there were only networks, the main networks. You know, you had uh, no ESPN. So, you know, Game of the Weeks were uh, very important to watch. Uh, they were every Saturday. And I remember when Dizzy Dean was, uh, for a short while, was was the color commentator for uh, mm-hmm. for those NBC Game of the Weeks, going that far back. And, um, you know, basically, the, we grew up in San Francisco. The Giants only televised, and that was the Giants of Willie Mays, Juan Marichal, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Philippe Lou. Um, they only televised games in Dodger Stadium, Chavez Ravine. And so we only had nine games to watch all year. So it was, it was April when it was school. We had to come home and do our homework. And then we had an early dinner and we all sat down and watched the games. In 62, when they expanded the Astros and the Mets, ironically, the Giants opted of all the teams in the National League to televise another team nine games uh, on the road. And they chose the Houston Astros. Uh, for some ungodly reason, I have no idea why they didn't choose the Cincinnati Reds or the Atlanta Braves with Hank. Uh, I'm sorry, the Milwaukee Braves back then with Hank Aaron. I have no idea. But we were just happy to get nine more games to watch Willie Mays, McCovey, and those guys. So basically everybody, everything revolved uh, around sports. Mom uh, basically made the meals around our sporting events, and it was year-round. Now, when I, I, I read this, and, and I'm curious if it's true, because sometimes you read things and, and they're just simply not true. But but is it true you did not play baseball as a senior in high school? I did play baseball, but I didn't play baseball for my high school team. I uh, my dad, uh, I had a, I had every scout in the world uh, in the ballpark. I came out late from basketball, so I pitched. You play two games a week. I pitched one game a week. My arm I hadn't thrown since last summer. <clears throat> so my arm wasn't ready, and um, you know I was their ace, and uh, I was getting my fanny kicked because my arm wasn't ready. And uh, my coach pulled me out of a game and said I wasn't hustling or something, something ridiculous. And um, uh, I got the approval from my brother as well, my older brother Gary, and uh, my father. You know, you don't have to put up with that. And you know, my dad was always fairly pugnacious to authority. So I quit, and then my dad got me on a semi-pro team the rest of that school year, and they played on weekends, and it was the El Cerrito, believe it or not, the El Cerrito Cardinals, and they had their uniforms were the birds on the bat, like the St. Louis Cardinals, and it was, you had to go across the, I believe, the Bay Bridge, uh, and uh, go over to East Bay, and go past Berkeley, and it was around an hour, and a little over an hour drive. Uh, maybe an hour and a half to the ballpark, and they would play double headers on the weekends. I played Saturday and Sunday, and I was competing. I was 17 years old when I graduated because of my birthday. So basically, uh, I was playing against guys that were 25, you know, 26 guys that uh, played in the minor leagues or were college players, and it was really difficult for me because I was I was overmatched physically. Guys were bigger, but it was a good experience. And then when school let out. The summer league started, and our Babe Ruth League was called the Joe DiMaggio League because of uh, Joe being the mm-hmm. ultimate 
San Francisco ball player. Uh, and uh, actually, Joe DiMaggio, my dad, started the league, and Joe DiMaggio came to opening day uh, the first year. So, and uh, took part in the festivities. But uh, and I had when I played in that, I, I I was already in ready to play. I, I hit almost 500 or whatever, and I was I lost one game. It was the championship game that went nine innings. I lost two to one. Um, in nine innings, I struck out 19 and. Evidently, the Cardinals were scouting me all summer, and we'll get to the story of my why I was drafted so low. I had full rides to um, Cal, Berkeley, where my brother was going to school and playing there, and um, also Stanford, and I wanted to go to Stanford, and um, they pulled my scholarship from Stanford, so something the word got back, I guess, I don't know, Ray Young was the coach then, so that was flushed down the toilet, which I never forgave my coach for that. And um, But the Cardinals uh, had Jim Johnson was the scout, the local bird dog, and he scouted me all summer long, uh, and I knew he was scouting me. When the draft came, I was still available down there, and they said, well, heck, he's a, let's take a flyer and just draft him. That's what they told me later. And evidently in the championship game, the head of scouting, George Sylvie, was in the ballpark. He flew from St. Louis, and Bill Sales was the scouting supervisor of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington State. And he flew down for the game. So after that championship game, <clears throat> they came to the house, and Dad told them basically they had to give me $50,000, which they took a big gulp. <laughs> and my dad said, well, look, you know, he's going to go to Cal and play at Cal, and um, I want him to have enough money, and then if he doesn't make it, uh, he can go back and get an education. If not, he's going to go to go to Cal and play ball there. Well, into the night, around an hour, an hour and a half of negotiation, we finally agreed to $30,000. Now, $30,000 for a 40-second round, you know, over what was a five-something pick, was pretty remarkable back then. And I remember Edgar Peel from Brooklyn, or Queens, was the number one draft pick that year for the Cardinals. And he was a big, big guy. And... Uh, uh, he was out of high school, broke all the records in high school. I think he broke all of Ed Cranepool's records. And uh, he was the number one pick, and he was the first baseman. And he got 100000 So that was the money back then. Mm-hmm. Was a, so for me to get 30 <laughs> the number one draft pick got 100 that was a, a lot of money back then. So, And then it went from there. You know, I started playing minor league ball and eventually made it. But, you know, I, I was reading, and I, I had never really paid attention, to be honest with you, until you had agreed to uh, kindly join us here today, that, that when you were coming up through the minor leagues and even at the very beginning of the big leagues, um, your defense was always there. I mean, you won a gold glove uh, a year after being, a couple of years after being in the big leagues, but you weren't hitting a ton in, in the right. minor leagues. What, what, what changed? Because then all of a sudden, within a three-year time frame, four-year time frame, you hit 344 and win a batting title and a co-MVP in the National League. Right. Um, well, 18 years old, the first time you're playing every day, that's a big adjustment. You know, you're in high school, you're playing twice a week, you're in the summer league playing twice a week, and all of a, and, and all of a sudden, and you're, you're the big muck muck, you're the big star. Now all of a sudden you're, I remember going to camp when I was 18, I, it was 1972, my first year, and there, there was like... Uh, 400 kids in the ballpark uh you know that were there and there was only there was seven teams and or eight teams back then and uh different classifications 
So the competition was keen. Um, I had my got my injuries out of the way when I was young. I the last, towards the end of spring training, I was a swinging bunt down the third base line, and the fielder fielded the ball and, and threw it on the run, and the ball sunk into the runner. And the point of the runner's shoe hit my uh, my ulna, my ulna uh, on my forearm, and broke it. So I started the season. I was out eight weeks. Uh, I was in a cast, and then I had to come back uh, into when the season was already in progress. I hit 256 there, and that was a learning. It was difficult. A lot of hard throwers in A-ball didn't know where it was going. Um, the competition level is a little better than that, mm -hmm. I think. You know, when you're, you're playing against people from all over the, all over the world, Latin America, and South America, United States. And uh, then, but double A the next year was uh, the most difficult year for me. I had the most difficult time in double A. Uh, I started seeing the slider for the first time, a right-hander throwing the slider on my hands. And um, it was a big adjustment. I got off to a terrible start. And, um, uh, you know, thank God Bob Kennedy Sr. was the farm director. Yep. And I was hitting like 190, and I just was under under 200 and I really was ready to have a nervous breakdown and I just thought my career was over my I had a, a problem with my wrist after I the, the forearm healed and if I slid and my if I if I jolted my my uh, hand on a slide I couldn't pick up a bat for around a week and I just I thought maybe my career was over eventually it went away thank god but um I got hot and I remember it took we had a doubleheader. It was so hot in Little Rock. And we played a, a doubleheader every Sunday there. And I went like six for eight, and I got my average to 300. This is probably in uh, July. And uh, I went home and took a bath, I remember. And uh, I think everything just came out of me. And I came back to the ballpark the next day, and I was drained. I didn't know how to play every day, you know, back then. I was 19 years old. And I was emotionally drained. And I went down, I went from 300 to 260. And I mean, I was going in the tank. And what does Bob Kennedy do? I get called into to, uh, Tom Burgess's office. And he says, you're going up to Tulsa, AAA. You're going to meet the team in Wichita. I go, you're kidding. He goes, nope. He goes, go up there and have fun. They're, they're uh, 10 games under 500. They're going nowhere. Uh, Mike Fiore was the first baseman. No, it wasn't Mike Fiore. It was another year. Uh, he goes, you're going to play every day, and the team's going nowhere. So I get an airplane, fly to Wichita. Jack Kroll's the manager, calls me in the office and tells me, we're going nowhere. Just go out and have fun. Do what you can do. We know you can play. Well, I go out there in 35 games, and I hit 333, and I drive in almost – I drive in 30 runs, something like that. We turn around and win the, win the division – the last day of the season, we we take a doubleheader from from the Cleveland team, uh, which was Oklahoma City, and we go into the playoffs and we the mighty Iowa Oaks, which was the White Sox. We beat them in seven games. We win the championship. That turned my career around. I remember running into Bob Kennedy years later after I was you know my career, and I was in the middle of my career and I was having the success. And I asked him, why did you call me up? 
And he said, Keith, I knew that you had it. I knew that you were something special. And if I had sent you down, it would have destroyed you. So I took the chance that Tulsa calling you up would make the difference. And sure enough, that's, that's a big, big point of my career right yep. there. It wasn't for Bob Kennedy. It was, and then you have people in your life that are there yep. uh, when you need them. And uh, Bob Kennedy was one of them. And that basically saved my career. And how cool was it that when you finally got the call to the big leagues, you got to make your major league debut in your hometown? <laughs> I mean, now that, you know, you talk about moments or people, whatever it <clears> might be. I mean, how cool was that? It would have it, it's it's cool, but it was stressful. Uh, you know, my dad was my my batting instructor, taught us how to play. Former minor league minor league player, I didn't make it. I had to leave a lot of tickets. It would have been better to probably open up somewhere else with less stress. I mean, we were in Oklahoma when Ken Boyer was the manager in Tulsa that year in '74. Torrey had sprained his uh, thumb, and they didn't want to put him on the DL. It was a DL back then, and. Um, they called me up, Boyer called me in and said, you're going to play. Torrey's a day-to-day and they need a first baseman. So who, I meet them in Candlestick. I fly from Oklahoma City. And who do they make the roster move to, to make room for me is Tim McCarver. Tim McCarver no got released. Kidding. Wow. And you got, you got Bob Gibson on the team who pitched to him all those years. And Bob was tough. He was the... Um, uh, you know, you were a plebe back then when you were a rookie, and Gibson was rough and uh, just stayed away from him. But I played the three games in Candlestick, started, and uh, we lost two out of three, but I did okay and um, got my first hit there. And uh, then we went home, and Joe came back and played. And then Red sprinkled me in the lineup. That was the year we lost to the Pirates, the last game of the season for the division. We were in Montreal, and Red threw me and played me a lot and I hit two, 291 with around 30 almost 40 at bats I did well uh, but boy I was thrown right into a pennant race and boy was that exciting with Lou Brock stealing bases I remember we had a game and, and it was packed at Bush Stadium and uh, Lou we were ahead beating the Phillies and Lou stole three bases uh, two bases and tried for a third and Bob Boone was catching and I'm sitting down by Red, I'm standing on the steps, far down towards home plate on the dugout. I didn't play that game. And Boone threw him out, and Boone was just screaming at Lou that, you know, it was like, you ate nothing, you're not supposed to steal. And boy, I just, the excitement, and I said, boy, I want to be a part of this. This is what it's all about, this kind of competition and intensity. It just really, it just sent a message to me. It really is fascinating whether you talk to guys at high school athletics, college athletics, professional, the very highest level, how, how there is, you know, there tends to be those moments in time like you just <clears throat> described where it sort of hits you, you know, um, whether it's a competition, whether it's the excitement, you know, the energy, whatever it might be. Um, you, 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 you become this star now in, in St. Louis. You win a batting title. You win an MVP, you win a World Series. Whitey Herzog comes in, and you've been asked about this a thousand times before. Uh, what happened with Whitey Herzog? Uh, <coughs> you and him. Where where did it go south? Well, I probably got off on the wrong foot. I remember my good friend uh, 
Rusty Staub, who you know, of course, yep. uh, when I came to the Mets. I, uh, you know, Whitey called me in the offseason when he took over the ball club. He took it over midseason. Ken Boyer was fired. He managed. We are having a terrible year. It was 1980. And um, he managed for two weeks. And then he had Red Sandys take over the managerial uh, position. Um, and Whitey was also the GM and manager. That was part of his deal with the Cardinals. That he was both at both positions. And he went upstairs and observed as the GM. It wasn't on the field ever again. The off season comes, and this is uh, before he makes the big trade, where he trades Ted Simmons and Raleigh Fingers and Pete Vukovic over to Milwaukee. And um, which was a very controversial trade, but he he Whitey was a Whitey was a character out of a Faulkner book or a Mark Twain book, and um, he called me on the phone and, and he goes, uh, "I want would you go fishing with me?" And I want to I want to get together with you and and I declined and I said because my father always said you didn't want to be a kiss ass, and I just felt like I was. It would be like brown nosing, and I said, "You're the manager. I'm just a player." And I, and I, I didn't go, and that may have got us off on the wrong foot. Rusty said I was stupid. I should have gone fishing, um, and but um, anyway, that kind of got things off on the wrong foot. He came over, and George Brett was his bobo, and George Brett was the premier player. He's a great player, a, a Hall of Famer, of course, and he had George over there, and um, I was the batting title. And so it was me and George were the two, like, big, big hitters. And uh, as far as, well, George had more power than me. But uh, <clears throat> it was like, I felt like, um, I mean, he came up to me one time and said, uh, you don't take in, why do you insist on everybody take infield? And I never liked to take infield. I took my ground balls pregame and... Um, I took my ground balls very, very seriously all the time. I did my 15 minutes of work before every game, caught all the balls from my my infielders, and uh, I was a gold glover. That's the easy part of the game. You can blindfold me, and I can go out and, and pick it, and that's the easy part of the game for me. And he told me I didn't play. I, I, you know, I, do, I would just go through the motions. I wouldn't lollygag, but I wouldn't play burnout, and I would conserve my energy. It's hot in St. Louis. And he kind of got on me about, uh, you don't take infield hard and throw the ball around. I said, why? That's a long season. I go, I'm not, I, I, I get my ground balls. I don't, I'm not going to waste any energy on, on infield. But he was old school. And that, back in those days, everybody loved to take infield. And you know, I took infield every day. So uh, that was the rule. That was all there was to it. I did it, uh, but I didn't play burnout. And I just, I'm going to conserve my energy. I played 155, 52, 57 games a year in that, on AstroTurf, in that heat. And uh, <clears throat> when I went over to New York, ironically, I asked Davey if I could not take infield at home. Because at home, actually on the road, because you took the last infield. And then you had to come in, mm -hmm. change your shirt. And you had like 25 minutes for the game. And I really like to get that period of 45 minutes for the game after BP just to relax and prepare and go out and warm up. Uh, so um, I, I, things just kind of, I never felt that I was Whitey's kind of player. I've I never felt really any warmth from him. Um, and, um, but you no, know, I loved playing for him. He was the best field manager I played for. Uh, he never made any mistakes. Uh, he was a great 
communicator with his team, teammates, uh, not his teammates, his players. And um, he just was really a terrific manager. It was an eye opener for me. He made me a better ball player, taught me parts of the game that I, you know, I was trying to establish myself. But then the little things when you were established, now you can start, you know, you're confident and you're going to be in the lineup. You're a star, you're a good player. And, you know, getting a runner over, driving, you know, doing the little things uh, to help win a ball game, particularly when it's late and close. Uh, he made us, he made our team uh, world champions. I mean, he came over and took charge of that team and we needed leadership. We had a lot of young players. It was the changing of the guard. Lou Gibson had retired. Uh, Lou had just retired, Lou Brock. Uh, and it was a transformation at Gary Templeton. We had a lot of young players and uh, sprinkled with Ted Simmons and uh, George Hendrick, veterans. Um, so we had Gene Tennis and Jim Cott. So, but we were basically, the foundation of that team was young and Whitey pretty much, players want to be led. And he was, I don't, I don't think we, we win the, the World Series if Whitey wasn't our manager. You know, I, you, you try to put it into context today, and I don't know if there's a player that I could, could, <clears throat> could draw an analogy to, but for, for, for fans, you know, that are, that are a little younger than you and me, I mean, it, it's trying to now look at a situation where you were. I mean, here you were, you'd been an MVP, you'd won a World Series, you're winning a gold glove every year, you're extraordinarily popular with the fans. They announce a trade on the Jumbotron at Bush Stadium, and the place goes mm. crazy. I mean, they cannot believe that they have just heard that Keith Hernandez is traded. And not only <coughs> traded, Keith, you, you're traded to a team that is a horrible team in the New York Mets yes. and had been horrible for nearly a decade. What were you thinking? Um... Well, I was not happy about it. I mean, the Mets, since they traded Seaver, they traded Seaver in 77. They were perennial last place team. They were, um, and I really feel that Whitey, uh, I think, was uh, trying to put me, to bury me in that Siberia. Yep. And it, um, I went over there. Uh, it was a, that, that 83. So I played the second half of the season with uh, with the Mets. And it was very unsettling. I was going, uh, ready to go through a divorce. The marriage was falling apart. Um, and uh, there was a lot of bad things going on in my life at that point, which affected my play. Um, I think it's important to note that um, when we won the World Series in 82, I had achieved everything in baseball. I had won an MVP, I had won a batting title, I had won gold gloves. I was an all-star. The last thing I hadn't attained, which was a team effort, was a World Series. And I'll be honest with you, in 83, when I came back, I was lacking. In, I, I needed um, another goal, and I was just flat. And I, I admit to that. And I remember going up to George Hendrick in Atlanta, who I respected very much. And I asked George about it, and George told me, Keith, every player goes through it. You're in the kind of in the middle of your career. You've done everything now. He goes, you'll get past this, and you'll get rejuvenated and re-energized. It's just it's a passing phase. Uh, that was right before the trade. So um, I was not playing well. I was in a slump, and um, the rumors were swirling, and I just didn't know where I was going. So uh, – uh, 
when he called me in the office uh, during BP on the 15th, we were playing at home, um, and I took my ground balls, and he called me in right when my group was going to go hit. So I, oh, yeah, I think he did that on purpose. So I went out and got all the, did all my ground balls and got all my throws, and we hit first, or the, the one, two, three in the lineup, one, two, three, four in the lineup, hitting one, in group one after the after the bench players and uh, that's when i got called in so i knew i was gonna get traded i went in the office and he said we traded you and i said well where and he goes, new york i go new york he goes yeah um we needed pitching it was for neil allen and rick Olmby. I, okay fine neil allen was a pretty good pitcher and um i didn't know anything about Olmby. he was a minor league player um <clears throat> so you know, basically got on the phone with Frank Cashin and blah, blah, blah. And I really struggled through. I mean, I did well for the Mets. I, I didn't do great, but I hit 300 for the remainder of the season. And uh, I had to make a decision in the offseason whether I wanted to stay or not. And um, fortunately, my father, during the strike year, uh, in 81 was the strike year, of the yep. longest strike in baseball yep. history where you had the two seasons. And we won. If you cut the seasons in half, we won the division in both halves. I believe, and uh, or we oh no we had the best record something like that, uh, we had the best record overall, and the baseball decided who won the first half and who won the second half, and we finished second in both first and second half. We didn't go to the postseason. Whitey was livid, absolutely livid, and um, uh, we wound up winning the next year in '82, obviously. Uh, but anyway, going back to New York, I remember John Stearns called me, the catcher then. He said, Keith, um, they got a lot of young players down there, and I, I think you should stay. They've really not wasted their, their draft picks. They're, they're ready to come up and play. And then Mike Phillips was our backup shortstop in St. Louis, and Mike told me, he played in New York, and Mike told me, Keith, you're going to love New York. And New York was a rest town for me because it was, you know, when I played in the 70s, it was going broke. It was bankrupt. Yeah. It was a dangerous yep. place. And, you know, really, I just stayed in the, in the hotel, hotel bar, and didn't really go out but maybe a handful, not even a handful of times, once or twice in my eight years in St. Louis. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, those two guys with that and my father, who I had bought a dish for so he could watch me play those old big dishes that you put up on the roof. Mm -hmm. And during the strike, he watched uh, baseball. He watched the minor leagues. I think ESPN was televising minor league games. And he saw Daryl Strawberry. He saw Dwight Gooden. He saw these guys. And he just called me and I said, you know, I think you should stay. I think they can. these guys are very talented down at, down in the minor leagues and AAA level. I saw them play. So that's why I decided to stay. It was basically my dad. I said, I've made so many bad decisions in my life. And my dad always seemed to be upright and uh, on the ball. And, you know, for a guy with a high school education, a very intelligent man. And um, I said, oh, I, my, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to stay because of, because of dad. And uh, I called, immediately called Frank Cash and said, I'm staying. And uh, we started negotiating for a contract. Best decision I ever made. You know, it's interesting because you look back on those teams, and I remember that's really right when my broadcasting career was getting started, when you guys were really starting to get it rolling. Gooden had come up, set the world on fire. Everybody knew about Strawberry. I'm not sure how many people knew about the Lenny Dykstra's and the Tim Tuffles or the Ron Darlings or the Sid Fernandez. Or any, but, I mean, 
When you look back, and I remember the first major league game I ever broadcast was at Shea Stadium uh, in 1987. And Strawberry hits a home run to win the game off John Franco, <clears throat> off the scoreboard out in right field. And I thought to myself, and look, I didn't know shit about shit, right? But, I mean, I'm just sitting there, and I'm looking at this team, and I'm going, man, this, this is a really good team. There was an edge to that team. Uh, and, and I really <clears throat> think you were the guy that brought the edge to that club. That, that, that it was almost like you were playing with a chip on your shoulder a little bit. Is that a fair assessment? Well, um, you certainly want to prove everybody wrong that when they make, when they trade you. Um, so that I, when going to the Mets did give me another goal that I needed for the second half of my career. And um, I walked right into a gold mine of talent. And I realized that two weeks into spring training in uh, 1984 it was my first full season. Uh, I knew that there was, we weren't that far away. Um, there were other guys. I think Mookie Wilson sent the tone. He was a hustler. Uh, Lenny Dykstra was scrappy. Wally Backman was scrappy. We had Ray Knight, but Ray was gone in 87. But we had a, we had a, a, a really plucky group that uh, were we got in a lot of fights in 86. I mean, we weren't liked because of the curtain call. And I remember my first home run, there was no one in the stadium in 83 in the second half. And uh, people are, it had to be, what, four or 5,000 people mm -hmm. in the ballpark. And they're standing up and Rusty goes, you got to go take a bow. I go, what? Take a bow? I'm not going to show up the pitcher. He goes, you're not going to show up the pitcher. This is what we do here. You have to do it. So I got him, took my, that always pissed off a lot of people. And, uh, you know, Lenny had that kind of cock of the walk and Wally was that way too and rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, but that, I think, appealed to uh, New York Met fans. I think the Yankees are kind of the Wall Street kind of team. Uh, they were always had the back page of the sports, uh, the, of the papers, which is where the sports was. And I think the Mets were always kind of the blue collar underdog team. And... It's a National League town. They're dying for a National League, a New York National League team uh, to win. And particularly with the drought since the trade of Seaver. And they took to us. And uh, I think we represented New York. Uh, we got dirty and played hard. And we were a good team. We should have won more. 87, we should have won. Uh, we had... Uh, you know, Doc didn't come out of the season, uh, didn't, didn't start the season with us. We lost Roger McDowell in spring training with appendicitis. He had to get an operation. We missed him for the first month. We lost all of our pitchers, starting pitchers, which were phenomenal uh, at one point in the season. And we had such a great offense that Frank Cashin never made a move. We had AAA pitchers out there that came up uh, and pitched for us. But we were just so potent offensively. Um, I know if we'd have stayed, been healthy, I think we would have won in 87. That's the one year that really bothers me. But that competition with those St. Louis teams uh, in 85, uh, they won 102, and we won, we won 90 to 8, and we went home. <clears throat> 87, 86, we win going away. 87, we lose the last week of the season to them. We both win 90-plus games. Uh, it was those three years of competition uh, were unbelievable, and uh, you could, you, it was just so much fun. And everybody, the Shea Stadium was filled up. It was just a lot of excitement. So 
I'm kind of drifting here, so get me back on. No, 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 no. I, I, I just, you know, I, 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 I want to focus a little bit more on just a couple, a couple of names uh, and situations from those Mets days. Um, I always used to say uh, you, you had moved on by then, and I get the job with the Cubs, and I'm down in the visitors' clubhouse every day to come down and meet with a manager or some of the players. Of the it was a different time. I mean, you could, you, you could be down there in the visitor's clubhouse and you could smoke a cigarette and have a cup of coffee and nobody gave a hoot, right? I mean, it was those kind of days, right? And, and I remember, for whatever reason, I, I, I really hit it off with, with Gooden and Strawberry. I, I really liked them as guys. <coughs> I, I thought they were very pleasant, well-mannered, soft-spoken, engaging guys. And then they would leave Chicago – uh, and you'd read about something happening to one of them, whether it was drugs, <coughs> whether it was a domestic thing, whatever it was. And I think to myself, God, I, I can't believe that's the same guy. You went through, you know, your similar issues like a lot of people do in life. Um, you know, Strawberry ain't good. Did, did they strike you as the same way they struck me? Because I was shocked when I would hear about some of the things that would then happen to them in subsequent years. Well, Doc was a that you were correct in your assessment of both of them. They, uh, the wonderful guys that just went down the wrong path. Doc was a big shock. Um, and uh, he's the one that still to this day has his, has his demons and his, and, but Daryl's turned into a, you know, a Baptist minister and does a lot of good work for, with drug rehab for, for young kids and does a lot of good work. Um, I don't know. Daryl was, um, liked to be like Reggie, uh, I guess, like Reggie Jackson, he to, to be the, the swirl around him. Um, Doc, like I said, uh, when that came down, what, uh, everybody was just completely, completely shocked. And um, it was very unfortunate because he, you know, I, I remember playing behind him and I'm going, now I know what it's like to play behind Bob Feller, Tom Seaver, Sandy Koufax, the you know lefty Grove, the great pitchers. I had that part of my career where that rookie year for him, 84, 85, was a phenomenal Cy Young year for him. And even after he was still striking out a lot of people, to play behind him was really, really something special. And uh, very fortunate to be able to experience and see all those starts from my perspective at first base and be a part of it. Uh, but you know they're all uh, you know their careers are over now it's gone and um you know i daryl to me was uh could have hit 500 home runs uh he was just unbelievable talent you saw him play he was incredible yeah. um and it's just it's unfortunate but i'm glad that uh, he's got his life together and um he's doing well and you know i haven't seen i don't see doc very much but the last time i saw him he looked good and um you know you always you know, kind of pray for him and um, wish the best for him. And I think he's doing okay. Well, look, you were able to get through some, some similar issues, Keith, in your life. <clears throat> I, I mean, you know, look, um, I, you know, look I, I mean, I, I, I've learned it, you know, the hard way. And, I mean, you know, people <clears throat> want to be judge and jury about everything. And I don't think it's anybody's job last time I checked to be judge and jury uh, in, in terms of gauging other people's lives. Uh, I've always thought that, that, the, the, that some of the things you went through, I, I think it's amazing 
uh, and I say this with the utmost sincerity and, 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 and complimentary fashion that, look, you know, everybody goes through whatever they, they go through. How did, how did you get through it all? Um, baseball. Baseball was my, uh, my sanctuary, uh, the ballpark. Um, I, could, I was uh, going through a divorce. I took my divorce. to I, I left in 80, winter of 83, 84, and my divorce wasn't ever finalized till 87. Um, and that was hanging over my head. Um, you know, uh, also the issue, and I was part of the Pittsburgh trials and, uh, you know, I just messed around for a couple years, uh, just a little bit here and there, nothing crazy, but I can tell you that, you know, uh, it, cocaine is not a, a, a PED. It is a, it is a career destroyer. And, um, I realized that, and that's what enabled me to get away from it. I knew I had to. And I think getting traded to <clears throat> um, New York helped because it was like all of a sudden I had a new identity. I mean, a new team, a new bunch of guys, new organization. Uh, the, the, uh, when I got traded in 83, that stuff hadn't hit the papers yet. So it was uh, when it did happen, and I got the phone call from the FBI in 84, it was like I was my in my past. I'm, I got away from it. It was over. It was, that chapter of my life was done, and, and then all of a sudden, here it comes, pops up again, and, and so I went. Oh. So that was tough, and but I always was able to go out on the field and forget everything. Baseball was the most important thing in my life. When I was five years old, I realized uh, when my father had. Uh, sawed off a little league bat and started throwing tennis balls to us that uh, I wanted to be a big league ball player. And that was my goal and my, uh, my one desire in my whole life. <clears throat> and um, remember, I mean, I was dialed into things like all in the family and the Jeffersons and all this and the shows in subsequent years. Right. Okay. So I've never seen Seinfeld. <clears throat> I work with all these young guys here in the studio and they're like, dude, you got to ask him about Seinfeld. And then I start reading in preparation of this where Larry David, of course, who was very involved in that whole thing with Seinfeld, uh, has gone on to say, TV Guide goes on to say, the episode you were in, which I think was called The Spitter, right? Is no, one the, of boyfriend. The, the, uh, the Boyfriend. The uh, Boyfriend was one of the, uh, one of the best episodes of any television show of all time. That's according to TV right. Guide. What was that right. experience like? Well, I, I think it was 90. I retired in 91. My, I was out all 19, uh, 91. I had back surgery and my career was over. But I was active on the roster. So I think it was 93 of that show or 94. I'm not sure. I think 93. And it was, I think, the second year of the show, if I'm correct. Or maybe the third. I'm not sure. The show had really had not taken off. Um, and Larry David told me after we did it... Um, uh, it was a one week uh, in LA and I had never acted before, never wanted to act. Uh, Jerry was a Met fan. I was one of his favorite players. Uh, he conceived the idea. Uh, Larry David's a Yankee fan. So they collaborated and there was a lot of, uh, there was three other writers too. <clears throat> they told me, Larry told me after that they knew they had a hit show and they wanted to use it on sweeps, which you know is Mm -hmm. where the big advertisers are. And that's why it was an hour show. They show it in two episodes now, but it was an hour during sweeps. 
and they knew that they had a winner and it was all Larry said we didn't tell you but it was all hinging on you if you were a stiff it was just we were going to use it in season <laughs> it was going to be a half hour show if you just if you if you if you did okay if you if you if you held up okay we had the extra uh subplot which was George getting uh, going for unemployment and then going out with the daughter of the unemployment girl uh the uh, the, uh, the gal uh, the mother uh, going out with the daughter and then getting her a autographed baseball from me. And that was the whole subplot that they added to make it an, uh, an hour and it can use on sweeps. <clears throat> I had never acted. Um, Jerry, for some reason, did not call the Mets. <clears throat> he called my, my final, my agent was Scott Boris. And I hadn't, I'd had no need for Scott anymore. I was out of the game. And I haven't heard from Scott, and Scott's a family friend, by the way. He played A-ball with my brother. They were roommates in St. Petersburg, the Florida State League. So Scott's a very good family friend. And um, uh, he calls me and says, uh, you want to – got a call from this show. He didn't know what the show was. We don't watch primetime because we play night games. You know, we, all the primetime right. shows, we're in, a, we're in the middle of a ball game. And I had not heard of the Seinfeld show. He goes, there's a sitcom. They want you to come and uh, do, do a part in it. And I said, oh. I go, well, what's the show? He goes, Seinfeld. And I go, it's, he goes, it's a sitcom. I go, he goes, you got, you got it's minor, minor role, probably minimal lines. And I said, well, how much are they going to pay me? And he said, well, they'll fly you first class to L.A., put you up at the hotel. Pay you 15 grand. I said, sure, for a week, 15 grand. Just kidding. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, they FedExed the script to me. I got it on Friday and I got it full priority in the morning and there it was. And I start opening up the pages and I realize I'm the guest star and I've got a lot of lines and I had become friendly in New York with Marsha Mason, uh, the actress yep. I met up at Elaine's, the famous Elaine's and Marsha was living in New Mexico. And I called her on the phone. I said, Marsha, I just got myself in hot water here. I'm, I've I explained to her, and she, she told me how to memorize the lines, which was do line one, then line one, line two, then line one, line two, line three. Make sure you do it before you go to bed because it, it, it absorbs. You get up in the morning, have your coffee, do it again. So um, I fly Saturday to Los Angeles. I have Sunday off. Monday's the first day, and they're all meeting at this big, long, rectangular chair, the, the principal actors um, and um, Larry David and the three writers, and they're going over the script. And I, I'm going, oh, my gosh. And um, they're all interacting. And Larry David gave a lot of leeway. You know, uh, they had input from, the, from uh, Julia... Uh, Jason <clears throat> and Michael, um, and then but Larry made the ultimate decision on what changes or additions or subtractions were made on the script. The first day that we started doing with the script on uh, in the afternoon on Monday, and then on Tuesday we're with the script and they're doing the blocking and the lighting. And I'm realizing now uh, I better get this my act together because. Uh, they're going to be, we're done on Saturday and then Sunday's off and then they go on to the next show. So I can't hold up production. 
and I had memorized my lines and um, I got through it. I mean, I remember that when we did it uh, at five o'clock, all the suits came in. It was NBC. I think it was on NBC. Yep. And they were kind of like the ones that were going to approve the script. Uh, they were the censors. And we did the whole run through in front of them in the studio and uh, in chronological order. And I didn't make a mistake. Uh, then the audience came in and um, there was around maybe 200, 150 people. Like this, this the, the set ran uh, from left to right here. On the left was the coffee shop. And then the next over right next to it was Jerry's apartment and then such and the cameras could run right through and you can go from one set to the other so the cameras above were like literally our baseball seats bleacher seats and I was just in front of a live audience and Jerry looked at me before he went on and said what are you nervous about you you perform in front of 50,000 people there's only 250 people here 100 people I said, Jerry, I, had, I hit a baseball. I didn't have to memorize lines. So the funny part about it is the first scene when I meet him in the gym with uh, Jason. Uh, and uh, I don't think Michael was in that scene. I'm not sure. I forget. Um, they changed that scene the most. And right that before that, they changed it again. And I had memorized not only my lines. I memorized if I interacted with Whoever I was interacting, I knew their lines and I knew, okay, here's Jerry, here's Jason. Now it's my turn, my line. And then I went to Michael. So that's how I, I knew all, all. When they changed that first scene, that interrupted the whole sequence for me. And I went out and I flubbed my line on the opening scene in front of a live audience. And I went, oh my God. And I <laughs> so cut and go back. And I come out and I didn't screw up the rest of the way I did it. I got through it. I mean, I was just so nervous after when it was all done. Uh, we went back Saturday the next day and did it in studio. And all the pressure was off because studio, just a camera, you can cut. The, and and, and uh, then I'd spend an extra week in L.A. because I was just so exhausted. I went down to Shutters on the Beach and stayed a whole week in L.A. and just laid in the sun and uh, recovered. <laughs> Keith, I can't thank you enough, man, for your time today. Uh, you have a lot of other people and a lot more important things going on than to join us on this show. But I certainly appreciate uh, your friendship through the years, all your support, and uh, and for reaching out with a very kind note the other day. And uh, wish you nothing but the best, man. Godspeed ahead. Well, good. You know, Phil Mushnicker for The Post wrote a very nice little piece, and I couldn't agree with it more. And hopefully you get back in the booth where you belong. All right. Keith, thanks for the time, man. You take care of yourself. Okay, you got it. Keith Hernandez, kind enough to join us. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.